0: It's our sense that as this church is growing, as it has been, the most important thing is for the growth that we experience together to be healthy, to be the kind of growth that Jesus wants us to experience. And to that end, we've decided to direct our attention each week to the images that the New Testament gives of what the church is. Uh, I said this very plainly when we were together at Summit High School. The church is not the building. A Renaissance church is is not the top two floors of the opera house. It's not the place where we meet, but it's the people that God is bringing together in all of their variety. We're not all the same. God gathers people to himself and he does that so they'll uh, be able to see Jesus. And as God is doing that, there the church is. Now God does that for a reason. He wants our seeing Jesus to change us. Uh, to take us from where we were to a new place that's better for us and for the world around. And the church is that place also where those who are seeing Jesus are growing to follow him so that they become people who resent less and forgive more. Uh, so that there are people who feel more and more peace and less and less anxiety. Like Mary's story showed us, there are people who can let go of their past hurts and embrace a new future, one which is joyful, where they can leave behind God's forgiveness for them and turn it outward to others and be the bearers of God's grace in the world around them. And that's the third thing. The church is the, is the people who've seen Jesus, and now they go out and show him. Uh, these three words that I've already spoken, they've been um, here uh, from me as your teacher for these last months because uh, what happens when we look at the images of the church in the New Testament is we see that they're always picturing a community that's gathering to see Jesus and growing to follow him, so that they go out and show him to others. And that's how the New Testament principally teaches people how to think of themselves in relationship to God so that they see that the church is not the building, but rather the people that God has gathered. And my hope for us is that as we grow in our own vision of what this church is, that we'll have a, an understanding that's faithful, that helps us be who God wants us to be. Uh, and by the way, that is better than we could imagine for us and more profoundly good in the world around us than we've even dreamed. That's what God wants for those people who are gathered to be his church. Now, this morning, like last week, we'll listen again to Jesus. He'll be our teacher. Uh, Jesus, uh, he he, he was interested uh, primarily in helping men and women see the truth about who they were so they could be who he wanted them to be in the world. And, and, And often in his lessons, in his words, He's trying to shape the self-understanding of those who listen. And this morning, we're going to go to uh, a teaching in John 15, where he's speaking to a gathering of disciples, students of his who are trying to learn. And, And in this statement in John 15, he tells them who they are in relationship to him, and that helps them understand what it would mean to be a part of his community, the church. So I want you now to listen with ears open To how to see yourself in relationship to Him as a part of the church. This is John 15, and this is verse 1, and then verse 5 beside it. Here's what Jesus taught I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower, and you are the branches. In this concise statement, Jesus is depicting. His relationship with the disciples, not just individually, but as a gathering all together, so they'll have the right understanding of what it would mean to be in his community, which is the church. And in a nutshell, he's teaching them that the church is the community of people that is gathered to him, like branches are gathered to a vine. Uh, If you use your imagination as Jesus intends you to, there are principally two big ideas that Jesus wants to convey through this metaphor. And they're not meant to be ideas alone, but rather those kinds of ideas that send you off into the world differently than before you were able to think of them. Uh, and, And that's what Jesus intended then and now as well. And so try these out. The first big idea is a matter of the nature of the relationship that Jesus expects between you and himself. That's the first big idea in the vine and the branches image. That's the first thing he wants you to have in your mind to change you. And then the second thing, which is absolutely indispensable, is the relationship that you should envision between you and all the other branches on the one hand, and the world in which God has placed you. Missing either one of those two, you'll miss what the church is. Because the church is a community that, first of all, has a particular kind of relationship with Jesus. This morning, I wanna unfold from this image, the vine and the branches, what Jesus means you to know about what he wants from in relationship to you. That's the first thing. But always the church is also a community that is meant to have a particular kind of relationship in the world. And if you miss that, then you miss everything. The church that believes it's a building and is quite happy to gather in their own little space and shut the doors and and make the windows foggy so you don't see what's going on out there, and just be okay here is not a church. Was that cough like a silent agreement? (laughs) But instead, the church that Jesus wants to build sees in this image of vine and branches something about our relationship with him and altogether our relationship with the world. And in order to learn, what I'm going to try first of all is to help us be where Jesus' first students were because they had an advantage over us when they listened to him. Uh, Partly because they lived in an environment where vines and branches were commonplace. Many of them came from families who had their own vineyards and would have known what's involved in making fruit grow from a vine. They had that over us. They also had over us the truth that from the time they were little children, they had already known that vine and branches was a metaphor for how they were supposed to understand themselves in relationship to God. Let me give you that background first. Uh, Maybe you know what the most important building in Jerusalem was. The building that would have been at the center of the religious lives of everyone who ever heard Jesus talk in that first century. It was the temple that was the most important. Uh, Some of you have traveled to the Holy Land. Still on that site, there still is a special building. The one that was around when Jesus was teaching, that was destroyed actually in 70 AD. However, we know what it was like, what it looked like from historical descriptions that we have. Josephus is one writer who lived in Rome. He was born in 37, died in 100. He, in his histories, described exactly what the temple looked like. He, He tells us what those first hearers of Jesus would have seen when they went there. Uh, Imagine this. As you approach the temple, there are great pillars made of bright marble, each one carved out of a single stone, 40 feet high, holding up the porticos under which you'd walk to come into the great sanctuary. There are thousands of people who are coming together to worship God, and maybe you're a child there with your family. You make your way from the outer um, reaches into the inner sanctuary where in the very center is the place that's called the Holy of Holies. You've grown up knowing that no one is allowed to go in there except for the priest. You can gaze at it through the golden gates. And when you do, you see a curtain that goes from ceiling all the way to floor, covering the door. Some of you have heard of the temple veil. Josephus described what it looked like. It was woven of fine linen, purples, maroons, a dark blues, bright yellows, and earth tones. On this curtain was depicted a picture of the universe as a whole. And it was the artist's way of saying, here you've come to the place where God himself is. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to be there, to see that spot? Uh, Josephus tells us that above the curtain from the ceiling hung the finest work of artistry that could possibly be produced in brilliant gold, a great vine, with grape clusters hanging from it, as big as a person. And there it hung so that every child, every adult that came into the presence of God there in the temple would have a visual picture that reminded them of how they were supposed to think of themselves in relationship to God. Because their scriptures taught them that you are the vine and God is the vineyard owner. Why that image? From as far back as the writing of God's people goes, it's an image that is repeatedly used to depict God's people in relationship to God. They are the vine that bears the fruit of God in the world because uh, God himself selected Israel to be a choice vine so that he could plant them so that they could grow and bear good fruit in the world. Listen to the way uh, it's put in one of the many places it appears. It's in Psalms, it's in Hosea, it's in Ezekiel, it's in Jeremiah, in the prophet Isaiah. There's a teaching that's meant to picture God and Israel along these lines. Here's how Isaiah 5 begins. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. This is a poetic picture of God on the one hand, and Israel on the other. Israel was a people that was trapped in slavery. They were in Egypt. God came in with his power. He freed them. He led them through the desert, and he delivered them to a land that he had promised them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Is this familiar to some of you? Um, When they arrived in the land, he cleared it. He made it ready for them, and he planted them in that perfect place, just like a vineyard owner prepares for planting a vineyard. And there he placed Israel so that they would thrive and they did grow. In that promised land, the people of God grew, but, but listen now, they didn't grow in the way that God wanted. Listen to how Isaiah continues. He expected it to yield grapes because that's what you expect when you plant a vine, but it yielded wild grapes. This upset It may be harder to see in English. In Hebrew, the word wild grapes means something like sour, rotten, moldy grapes. Funky is the right way to put it. You ever see a funky grape? You ever eat one by mistake? God did all this work with this people because he planted them in a place where he expected them to grow something good and wonderful, but what came up instead was not good. It was awful. And every time the vine image was used of Israel in all of the books I mentioned, This always is the same outcome that the poet or the prophet uses. To say that God had something good in mind for the world when he brought these people out and planted them. But what came up was not good. We don't have to use our imaginations. Down in verse 7, Isaiah tells us exactly what this means. He says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah. Judah is the name of the father of the sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. There it is right there, the vine and the branches and the fruit. That's God's people. That's why it was hung up there in the temple for all of Jesus' students to see when they were kids. But then Isaiah continues, the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed. Righteousness, but heard a cry. That's the prophet's way of differentiating between grapes and wild grapes. What God expected when he put his people in that land was that they would be righteous and just, and that would be good for all of the people who lived in the environment around them. But what happened instead is he saw bloodshed and a cry because God's people were not what they were meant to be with their neighbors. They were greedy. They were self-centered. They were wicked. They were Uh, unjust. They were dishonest. They were arrogant. They were unteachable. and, And they, instead of giving the fruit that God wanted, they gave this wild grapes instead. And so the prophet in Isaiah says, what should God do? And he asks it in terms of the vineyard owner. What should the vineyard owner do in this situation? And the answer is plain. He should knock down the barrier around the vineyard and let it go. And if you know anything about the history of the Old Testament, after settling in the land, the neighbors of Israel come in and they ruin the city and the people are sent off into exile. And that happened. And this is a poetic picture of that and the reason why. But listen, the hope does not end there, but instead it's cast forward in terms of the promise of the vine coming back once again. Now, I, I'm, I, I'm asking a lot of you, but, but follow me here. Imagine now you're one of those people who was listening to Jesus as he said, I'm the true vine. And you have it in your own mind that the vine is the people of God. We've seen it there in the temple. And you also have it in your own mind that what the vine did is instead of growing good fruit, it grew bad fruit. And then one last thing in your mind, there's the hope that was expressed later on in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 27. It's a hope that speaks of something that will come in the future. This is verse six. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with its fruit. That is the prophet says, look, even though there's a wreck and a ruin of what the vineyard owner had started, there's going to be a day in the future when the the vine itself is revived and it begins to bear the fruit that we always knew it would. And now so when you go to the temple and you see the vine with the great grape clusters what you see It causes you to hope that just maybe good things will finally come about in the world again because of God's great plan to bring blessing. Put the story aside for a minute. Have you ever wished yourself for good things to happen in the world because of what you've learned to believe about God? Have you experienced that? If you haven't, I hope you have. Not not because uh, in any measure, it's a good thing that your hopes have not yet been realized. But the truth that there is hope in you, that one day there will be good fruit in the world, is a hope that is in you because God himself put it there. And what Jesus did when he taught the disciples that day, uh, in the words which we've read already from John 15, is he told them the truth about the hope that they had long had for what might come one day. And now I want you to listen again to Jesus' words with fresh ears. With all of that in your background, now listen, imagine there you hear Jesus say what he said in verse 1 of of chapter 15. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine grower. And then he tells you who you are, and you are the branches. This is Jesus' way of saying "It's, it's no longer the descendants of Jacob or the people who were born into it. Who are God's planting for God's purposes in the world. That's not how it works. I, Jesus says, am the true vine. I'm the, the long awaited hope that one day the vine would grow again. And the way it's gonna work from now on is that you yourselves are related to me like branches to a vine. And in that way, the good fruit that God means to grow in the world is going to finally come about. And when he says this, he fulfills this ancient hope back then, and, and then aso- besides that, he tells those disciples then, and I believe he means to tell us right now what he expects of our relationship to him and then the relationship of all of us together in the world in which we find ourselves. Think of it for a moment. The vine and the branches. Where Jesus is the vine, and now think of you personally. That he means for you to be in relationship to him like the branches are, The vine. I want to dwell on this and I want to dwell on the other things that he teaches further on in John 15. And I want to do this so that we have four very practical bits of guidance for how we are going to be, as Renaissance Church, the church which Jesus intends us to be. And if you're just visiting today and and, and this is just sort of a passing through thing, that you would have something in your own mind to have clear expectations around what Jesus wants for you in relationship to him as an individual uh, so that you yourself would let him shape your understanding of who you are meant to be. So let's go uh, back now into John 15, and I'm gonna give us very simply four concrete pictures of how we're meant to think about ourselves as his church. We're gonna start in verse four, all right? So now open your ears, uh, thinking of you and the church. In verse four, uh, Jesus teaches as follows. Here's what he says. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Uh, The main point here is fairly easy to see. To be the church that we're called to be, we must abide in Jesus. In order to live, the branches have to remain connected in a vital way to the vine. If they're separated from it, they die. To live, they must maintain a continuous continuous relationship with it. And here, Jesus is picturing what he wants of every single disciple. He wants constant connection. And make this personal. What Jesus wants with you is for you to be connected to him in such a way that you are not connected only episodically, not when you happen to come to church once a week. Jesus wants regular communication with you. He wants to hear from you in prayer in the morning, in the middle of the day, in the afternoon. When the sun is going down, he wants your heart's cry to be reaching out to him in a way that is as profound as the connection between a branch and the vine. He wants you to encounter him in the people around you who are also growing to understand themselves in relationship to him. He wants you to abide in him as he abides in you. Now, that word abide there, that's not a word that we use very often unless you are the dude. The dude abides. Abide is from the same root as abode. You know what an abode is? That's your house, right? And what Jesus means here is that he wants us to make our home with him. Uh, try to imagine that and picture it. Uh, he wants us to consider him like a guest who comes in and then is there with us in our living room. He comes and uh, dines with us around the table. After the meal is done, we sit together and rest and reflect, and we're rejoicing on what was good, and we're asking for help. And then we don't want him to leave, not like the guests where you can't wait for them to go, but rather you hope and, and want him to stay there from now on because it's so good when he's there with you. And this image tells us that's what Jesus wants with us. He wants us to make our home with him. And he wants that not just for us individually, but he wants Renaissance Church to be a place where he would find a very open door and a welcome home. Uh, That means the kind of company he keeps should be the company we keep. It means the things that matter to him matter to us, and the things he doesn't want us fussing and fighting about, we're free to let them go. That's what Jesus wants, to be the church, which is his church, means to abide in him, to make our homes with him, even as he abides in us. And there Jesus is telling the disciples and us that what Jesus wants is to take up residence in our hearts, and you should know that. If you're growing to follow him, he wants to make his home in your heart, and he wants to be there with you because he loves you. And there as he dwells in you, there will be something that takes place which cannot happen unless he's there with you. So that first bit about his relationship with us leads to the second lesson here, and this, this is That second point that I said, this is a metaphor that's meant to teach us about our relationship with the world around us. This is absolutely critical. Here's what Jesus goes on to say in verse five. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. And here Jesus is saying an awful lot to those first disciples. He's telling them about the point of their relationship with him in the world around them. And if we'll open our ears and our minds, we'll learn from Jesus what the point of this church is, not just so that we can be connected to him. Yes, that's the first step, but there is a reason why the branch should remain connected to the vine. And in a word, it's because of fruit. Do you see it? What? Okay, sorry. Sometimes I do that, and my wife always says, don't do that. It makes people feel weird. I'm so sorry for those of you who felt weird, for those of you who giggled and helped me. I love you, and thank you very much. Jesus wants us to be continually connected to him, so there is something produced in and through us, please get this, that is good, not for the vine or the branches, but for the world around the vine and the branches. Now, let your imagination go there for a minute. If we miss this, we will never be the church that Jesus wants us to be. And in some measure, it's quite simple to see when you think about the vine and the branches. They are together so they'll grow grapes, so they'll grow fruit. And the fruit's not for the branches, is it? No, it's not. It's not for the vine. The fruit is for the hungry people who live in the region where the vine is growing, for those people who lack the kind of nutrition. That only comes when you eat a sweet and delicious and rich grape. Uh, The the fruit is for, get this, it's for making wine, which will cause joy and revelry and rejoicing as people enjoy it together in such a way that it gladdens their hearts. And and what Jesus means to teach here to those disciples and to us is that first we abide in him, but we abide in him in order to bear good fruit. That's the point. And if the church stops asking, what's the outcome of our existence in this world around? What's the fruit that we're bearing? What what are we doing for the people around us that are either feeding them literally or metaphorically, that's nourishing them either literally or spiritually nourishing them or causing joy in the world in a way that makes the world a better place? If we're not asking that, then we're not letting Jesus teach us to be the church that we're meant to be. Can you see it? We should ask, what's the good fruit that we're supposed to bear? Uh, for the person who wants to dig more deeply into this question, which he should, go to Isaiah chapter 5 and read the rest of the chapter. After that, description of Israel as bearing bad fruit rather than good, Uh, there's 11 or 12 things which the author says, here's what bad fruit looks like. I'll tell you the first one. Rich people in Israel, instead of sharing their money with the needy, they bought more land than they needed so that the poor people didn't have land enough to live on. They built new houses for themselves, which were beautiful and gigantic alongside their other houses, and now they had two, and so one of them was unnecessary, and though it was beautiful, it was wasteful, and that was bad fruit. Because good fruit is generosity with your excess. And that's the concrete stuff that Jesus means the church should think about. It should say, how do we use the excess that we have to help people in the world who don't have enough? And that's what we should do if we're gonna be a church that bears good fruit. That's just one of many pictures that are used in Isaiah. And and throughout the scriptures, let me say a few others. Good fruit is choosing no longer to hold on to resentment, which hurts you anyway, and instead forgive even when it's really hard to forgive. And the church bears good fruit when people who are coming to know Jesus are invited into the waters of baptism and that resentment is washed away and they emerge peaceful and joyful. That's good fruit. Good fruit is looking into the world around you and saying, how can I use the gifts that God has given me to help my neighbor or my friend or my coworker? without asking, first of all, if they measure up to what you think is the right kind of person, whether they behave just right or vote just right or believe just right. No, that's not the prerogative of the fruit. The fruit is there to be consumed and then to enrich the people nearby. And what I'll tell you individually, and I promise this is absolutely true about you, that what Jesus wants from and for you is that you would be connected to him in a vital way, abiding in him so that your life would be good for the people around you like fruit is good for hungry people. He wants that from every one of us. And you all have some fruit that you can grow. And then what he wants for and from Renaissance churches for us to be a church that asks of our relationship with Jesus when it feels great, what does he want to use us for? And you can ask this question in your high school with your friends or in the place where you uh, work, wherever you work, and with your, around the kitchen table with your family, whatever they believe you can do this and you should. That's what Jesus wants. That's the second lesson for how to be his community together. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. Let's go on uh, to a third. Because, and this third one is meant to help us grow up a little bit. Because Jesus' teaching um, is inspiring and encouraging, but it's also challenging. And there's an element in this metaphor that is challenging too. And so I'm going to ask you to be mature and accept this challenge. This is from verse 2, right after he tells disciples that he's the true vine and his father is the vine grower. He goes on to say this about his father. This is verse two. My father removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. There are two challenges there. One for the branch that's bearing fruit and the first for the branch that's not bearing any fruit. Often in Jesus' teaching, as he refers to um, metaphors for things that are growing, he'll point to something which is not producing as it's meant to. And what Jesus says emphatically is when that happens, God cuts the branches off. He takes the fig tree that is producing no figs and he cuts it down and throws it out. He takes the fruit tree that's bearing no fruit and away with it. The weeds that are good for nothing, they will be pulled up and thrown away. And here I think Jesus means to, in effect, startle us into action to know that if we believe that being a part of his community is like just receiving and never having any produce, we should not be surprised if there's a time when God cuts us off. And now someone in here is thinking about a person in the church and you've been thinking, I was waiting for the time when the sermon would give me permission to try to push them out of the church. Now I have Jesus behind me, right? But don't sharpen your sickle because do you notice who does the pruning? It's the father. Jesus did not say, And in the community, the branches will sometimes prune off other branches. That's not how it works. It's not our job. And that that should be freeing. That's up to God the Father. And and by the way, in terms of how he operates in the garden, he's more gracious than anyone else would ever be. And so we don't need to trouble ourselves uh, trying to figure out what we're supposed to cut off because it's not doing what it should. On the other hand, right beside that is also the promise that when there are branches that are bearing fruit, so that means if you're already growing as a disciple and you're beginning to bear fruit in the way that God wants you to, or when we as a church, Renaissance church, are growing and we're beginning to do good things in the world. By the way, we are. I'm so proud of Ren Cares and all of the activities they're doing here and beyond and out in the world. I'm so encouraged to know about many of you starting your own little small groups, praying for each other, encouraging each other, building each other up. That fruit that is being born is beautiful, but what we should expect is that if we're in the community, we have to expect pruning. And that means there's gonna be some things that cut There's going to be times when God, uh, through a closed door, perhaps, or an unanswered prayer, or something that we experience, first of all, as just upsetting, where God himself is going to come and he's going to take off some things that need to go in our lives. I bet I'm right that many of you will have found your own efforts at production in life um, frustrated because you have to realize, I'm trying to do too many things. Have you experienced that? And what you need to do is have some pruning. And here, Jesus promises that in the community, as you grow, you should expect that God is going to come along occasionally and cut things off for the sake of bearing even more fruit. And that's the point. The community is the people who are gathered together to to Jesus, to be connected to him like branches to a vine, so that they bear fruit, which is good in the world. And in order to do that, they should expect pruning. And now I want to leave, I've left this last uh, point for the end because I think it wraps up all three of those in a brilliant in and in a very beautiful way. Uh, after teaching the disciples to think about themselves as the branches of this vine, in verse 11, Jesus uh, pulls it all together by telling them why he's taught them in just this way. And I want to receive this together as Jesus' statement about what the bigger, the biggest point is for all of this Question about how to be his church. This is verse eleven. Here's what he says: I have said these things to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Uh, Jesus wanted there to be no question in in the minds of the disciples what the ultimate goal was, and the ultimate goal was joy. Uh, what Jesus wanted when he saw those. Uh, Disciples, some of whom were doing okay, and others who were racked with anxiety, whose lives were in disarray. What he wanted for all of them to have and experience through and through was joy. And I want to tell you in his name that what he wants for us as a church is for us to have joy and for the joy that we have to be complete. And here in his words, there's a, a little more specificity beyond just joy in general. The goal is that we should experience his joy, that his joy should be in us. And that's a fourth bit of guidance for us to be his church. It is to seek Jesus' joy. And and if we ask what makes Jesus joyful, the answer in my mind is just stunning and beautiful. Uh, Here, if you've not spent a lot of time in the New Testament, I'm gonna ask you to trust me. But those who have read the New Testament paying attention to the moments where Jesus is most joyful will know that they often take place around a table, a table where there is food served and where people are eating together. Do any of you have some of your most joyful memories around a table? No? Okay, I do because I love eating. But, but what's so brilliant about those moments where Jesus is experiencing the greatest joy around that table is there's always someone there who the religious community thinks shouldn't be invited a sinner, a tax collector, a woman who's pursued a a disreputable job, there in the presence of those outsiders, those outcasts. Jesus is with his own people and they're rejoicing around the table. They're behaving in a way that make the religious authorities say they're partying too much. And the reason that Jesus is overjoyed in those moments is the singular joy that Jesus experiences. The one that is above all other joys is when he comes out and he finds someone who's very far away from God for whatever reason and is able to bring them back into his loving embrace so his grace and mercy can transform them so they're a new person So that they can experience the life that they were meant to experience right there beside him Even with all their past with their present moment made new because of the radiance that comes from jesus The one who's right there with him and that's jesus joy to welcome those who are far from him back Close by if there was any doubt by the way about whether that was what he experienced in his own life All you need to do is pay attention to the joy in the stories. He tells Some of you know the story of the prodigal son This is the story of a wayward son who goes far away from his father in a humiliating way, but when he returns, instead of scolding him, the father throws the biggest party that anyone on the farm has ever experienced. Why? Because he feels joy at the return of this sinner. Prior to that story, there are two others that Jesus tells. A woman loses a coin, she searches the whole house to find it. When she does, she calls everyone together to rejoice. And before that, anybody know the story that comes before that? Help me out here. Yep, exactly. I heard it right over here. It was the shepherd who found the sheep. Did you hear that? It was the shepherd who found the sheep. If you were here last week, you heard the teaching that Jesus gave about the church being the flock, and he's the good shepherd. In that story, there's one sheep who wanders away, and the shepherd leaves the 99 behind to go after that one. And when he finds it, he feels joy like nothing else he's ever felt. He calls everybody together in the neighborhood to have a party because in Jesus' words, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who are righteous. And when Jesus says that, it's tongue in cheek because Jesus knows all of us are sheep who need to be recovered. And so here it is for us this morning, okay? We are the ones that Jesus means to gather to himself like sheep to a shepherd, like branches to a vine so that we abide in him so that being there in him, we bear good fruit. We should expect pruning, but we should seek Jesus' joy, which means the principal thing for Renaissance Church should be to welcome those who are far away from God and to rejoice when they return. That's who the church is meant to be. Now let's pray now and thank God uh, and ask for his help. God, we thank you that you teach us uh, who we're meant to be when we come and listen carefully to the teaching that Jesus gave to those first disciples. This morning, I ask very simply that, having dwelt on this particular dynamic image, the branch and the vine, that you would build us up individually to understand ourselves anew in light of who you've decided to be. And then I pray especially that as a church together, we would begin to bear good fruit in the world so that you would use us to bless the people who are far away, so that they themselves would come near, so that they themselves would be grafted into the vine which is growing and bearing good fruit. God, I thank you for the image of the shepherd who goes after his sheep. It teaches us about your love. We thank you that your love for us will never, ever stop pursuing us. We pray now that as we sing together yet again, that you'd open our hearts so that we could receive the gift of your grace for us. In Jesus we pray, amen.